Welcome to season three of Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. This podcast is produced by Beautiful Teaching. If you like our podcast, you will love our online courses. Our mission is to help both teachers and parents. We want to help bridge a large gap that currently exists between many classical schools and the parents who send their students to these schools. Teachers, do you want to know how to apply what we discuss on this podcast? Check out our affordable online immersion courses taught by experienced master teachers. Parents, do you want to understand how to support your student in a classical school, or do you simply want to know more about classical education? Consider our affordable book seminars where we discuss why classical education is truly a beautiful way of learning. Visit our registration page to see our list of courses and book seminars at beautifulteaching.coursestorm.com. Again, that's beautifulteaching.coursestorm.com. Also, join the discussion on our Facebook group at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We hope you enjoyed the show today. Thanks for listening. I am delighted to introduce a panel of experts. Uh, we are going to be talking about virtue. And I have with us today Dr. Matthew Post from the University of Dallas, Dr. Matthew Bianco from the Searcy Institute, Dr. Gary Hartenberg from Houston University, Houston Baptist University, correct? And uh, Houston that- Christian University these days. Okay, thank you. And Karen Glass, uh, our Charlotte Mason expert, and Peach Smith, who also is a homeschool, graduated her homeschool children, still uh, teaches homeschoolers and helps to coach many classical schools. And I consider it an honor and privilege to know these, these wonderful people. And I'm excited about this episode. It's going to be uh, deep. Um, because these people are very deep thinkers, but it's also going to be very practical for those of us who want to understand virtue. Um, And since virtue is pretty much the foundation and hallmark of a classical school, I think that this might be one of the most important episodes that I've ever recorded. So thank you so much, all of you, for uh, joining us. And I have a list of questions. And I think the most important question to start with is what is virtue according to the tradition? And I thought we ought to start with Plato, Aristotle, and the Bible. Plato and Aristotle and the Bible, uh, we primarily are a classical school. So I'll I'll start with the Bible. And I would say that my key verse is Philippians 4.8. Whatever things are true, whatever things are honorable, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, Whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. That's my go-to verse. That's a great starting point, Peach. Anybody want to respond to that? Uh, for the Greeks, it's it's virtue is more of um, 
it's an it's an excellence in anything that you're doing, right? So it's not just like probably today we tend to think about virtue as being more moral virtues. Like we kind of limit virtue to the moral virtues. And the and then the in the classical tradition, it's more of just excellences in whatever it is I'm doing, right? I can be a virtuous shoemaker because I'm excellent at making shoes, or I can be a virtuous uh, horse trainer because I'm excellent at training horses. The um, when Homer uses the term for virtue, the Greek term for virtue, arte, he's almost always describing an excellence over one's like prowess over one's enemies or. Uh, well, so physical prowess, military prowess, right? Heroic prowess, or, or in giving advice, wisdom, like Nestor gives great advice. And then that's his, his arate, that's his virtue. Uh, by the time you get to Plato, though, it's probably in, in, in Plato's Greece, which by which I mean, not Plato and Socrates themselves, but all the rest of the Athenians, right? In Plato's Greece, arate is, is, um, just being able to command the audience like the sophists do in the assembly, right? Being able to get the assembly to do whatever you want them to do. Um, I think it kind of uh, devolves from there until by the time you get to modern, the modern world, arate is like economic prowess over the people around you. So I just gonna... I think I think re referring to the modern is very important because, of course, Plato. Um, had the four chief virtues of the soul, justice, prudence, temperance, and fortitude. And, you know, that the, the quality, the greatest quality of a statesman is, is prudence. Um, and as you, as you pointed out, being a great shoemaker is a great virtue. And then we have St. Paul who brings in the theological virtues. Um, but I think we've almost come back to that original concept that you mentioned uh, just a few days ago, somebody remarked on something that I was saying, um, you know, some, you know, it was wrapping presents, something minor, that I was a virtuous person for wrapping well. And it really took me back. I said, wait a minute, I, it never occurred to me that wrapping a present could be considered a virtue. Um, and I think that was very telling. I brought it up to a teacher yesterday saying, well, you know, how do you view virtues? We're going to be talking about this tomorrow. And this is a public school teacher who sort of hesitated a little bit and said, well, I think it's virtuous that my children sit down. So I was like, okay, I, I think we need to, um, that's why I was saying earlier, we need to define what virtue is because I think that there is a, a, the lack of um, of terminology and the lack of a definition is quite problematic. I mean, there are so many virtues programs out there, but are they really virtues? I, if 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 it's okay, if I jump in, um, I've just been listening to what Peach and what Matt were saying, and it reminded me that for me, the definition of virtue is very, very closely tied with doing and not being. It involves action, so it it isn't you know being virtuous. You can't be virtuous if you're just doing nothing. You, you know, just sort of like there's some kind of an internal, you know, goodness or goodwill or, you know, good intentions. It actually has to be manifested in an action to be virtue. And, and I think sitting still and being quiet when you need to qualifies as an action, uh, you know, what you're saying. But it, that, that for me, that idea of acting, you know, doing, doing well, 
is, is a really important aspect of defining virtue, that it has to be something you do and not just something that you, that you are. It's not a state of being. I agree with you, Karen, a lot. And I think that that is one of the concerns I have with things I see in classical schools is I, uh, and we'll get to that in a little while with some of my concerns later, but um, I personally think that K-4, especially pre-K-4 kids, that they should be doing a lot more chores and actual habit activities that are physical in the classroom <laughs> than academic rigor. I think the rigor that uh, K-4 needs is habit training and discipline and tied very much to doing uh, over the intellect. I think the intellect, uh, the intellectual rigor um, can wait until they're about 10. <laughs> so that's just my two cents, but I, I'd like to hear more from everyone else uh, uh, responding to Karen on doing. I'm, I'm thinking Gary might have something to say on that too because of his work with Aristotle. And I know uh, that this is in line with what I think Aristotle would say. Um, yeah, I, I think so, sort of. Uh, and the reason for the sort of is that Aristotle uh, is pretty clear that there are two types of virtue. Um, there's the what we would call virtues of character, um, and these are things like courage, primarily uh, moderation, um, and then there are virtues of virtues of the intellect, right? And these are virtues that help us think well. Uh, so, if you want to include thinking as a kind of doing. Um, as opposed to just a mere sort of way of being, then I think that'd be consistent with uh, what Karen said, right? Um, so, and and I think that's a, probably a good idea to do. Uh, I was, you know, when you sent the questions, I was reflecting, trying to reflect on the sort of what would be the biblical account of virtue. I don't know that there is one. I think we get lots of them. Uh, and what stood out to me, um, one of the books I read with the freshmen in our program is the book of Proverbs. Uh, and so wisdom jumps to mind as, in a way, if we list off lots of different virtues, uh, we can imagine getting the, the sort of the response that Socrates gave Mino, like, oh, I was looking for one virtue and you just gave me a whole swarm of virtues. Um, but may, I think wisdom is in a way unique uh, as as maybe even the virtue. Maybe it's just what virtue is, is uh, wisdom. Uh, and so I, I think that might be a case you could make from the book of Proverbs. I think it's also uh, probably uh, Plato's own view. Uh, if we jump to Plato, um, in the Republic, he says that the, the virtue of good thinking uh, is, is totally unlike all the other virtues. Um, th those ones sort of come after, uh, and you can develop them. But the virtue of good thought, right, the virtue, sometimes he uses phronesis, other words, he doesn't really seem to care. But, uh, but the virtue of thought seems to be different, right? It seems to be in people uh, from the beginning, and he attributes this to its having some sort of divine origin. Um, and so it, it would be stand out as different. 
Um, so uh, a bit rambly there, but I would say, yeah, it definitely, And but wisdom does have to do with doing. Uh, it's not something you can be, uh, it's, it's not something you can have without it affecting what you do uh, in, a, in a really, you know, <laughs> to such a degree that things you would do without it are bad and wrong and things you do with it are good and right. That's really at the core of the debate between Socrates um, and Aristophanes when, you know, we're talking about arguing virtue and wisdom. And ultimately he says they're the same. I, I agree with you on the wisdom one, very much so. Isn't in the tradition, wouldn't um, wouldn't the distinction between being doing be a lesser distinction in that in that you can't be virtuous without it coming out in your doing? But we, I, I think, to your point, um, Karen, that the uh, that's not a that's not a, a truth that we really hold to today, right? Like, I because we don't because we 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 associate our thoughts with our being, right? So if I if I know the definition of virtue, but I don't have to do virtue, I don't have to do virtuous things to be virtuous, right? Because I know what it is in my head. And that, and I see, I think that's the, that's how I kind of took the distinction you are making, that just knowing the definition of virtue or courage or temperance or whatever is not to be virtuous. You have to do those things to be virtuous. Or you have to right. do good shoemaking or sit still or whatever it is, you know, right? right? Well, I absolutely agree with you that that's, you know, just knowing, and, and that's one of the things that's so easy to mistake is, you know, learning, like learning off a list of virtues or the definition of the virtues, very easy to mistake for actually having them or, or, or functioning according to them. And so the other thing that I think is really like a key, you know, element of, of virtue is and part of the essential definition is you have that knowing aspect. And I do think knowing is an action. You have the, you know, the know, um, the knowing aspect of it. And to translate it from what just, you know, having that knowing into action, it involves the will. And I think will is a really important aspect of um and isn't that isn't the Greek word isn't that Greek word that that you use that that I can't probably pronounce correctly arete or arete I don't know how to say it exactly I only see it on paper but um, doesn't doesn't that imply action or, or will or choice in some way like I feel like that's a really oh uh, you need a Greek scholar for that one I don't know the answer to that question but Matt Post Matt you know. I think I got that. I think I got that idea from reading Northern Nobility. So, okay, let, let's Matt, you chime in. I know that you know. Oh sure, um, thank you. Uh, yeah, no, I mean it does. Uh, my my understanding is it does just refer to anything which is. And actually, uh, Matt Bianco said this earlier. That's just excellent or outstanding. Um, and you see this a little more in Plato than in Aristotle. In which arate, like it, for example, he'll say, "What's the arate of the eyes?" And you're like, "Well, do they have intellectual or moral virtues?" No, there's just certain things that they're good at doing, right? So, um, and something that's interesting for them is because, of course, much like us today, um, the Greeks were confronting the question of whether virtue is real, uh, not just what it is, and and is it just relative? Right. You know, one, one of the things, one of the trite expressions from those days was uh, 
Um, justice differs from place to place, but fire burns everywhere the same, even in Persia, even in Persia, right? So these are not politically correct folks, obviously. But um, so when they were trying to think about how would we get at the question of intellectual and moral virtue, sometimes they turn to something that they thought most of us could agree on, which is, um, you know, and, and Matt again alluded to this, physical strength, right? And you can say, well, we all disagree about justice, but can we all disagree on who won the race or who threw this javelin furthest, right? So one of the questions that emerged there is, is virtue like health and fitness? Um, is moral virtue to get to something Gary said, you know, we tend to think often today when we use uh, the word virtue, we think of moral virtue. Um, is that like a fitness of the psyche or of the soul, right? And if it is, then virtue is as objectively real in the soul as fitness is in the body, right? So anyway, but it does, to get to Karen's point, it does um, come back to where that just has to do with this something which is, I mean, this is also part of the problem with it, right? Something which is better, right? That, uh, And I think this is one reason why some people are a little uncomfortable with discussion of virtue education, right? Um, on the one hand, uh, to briefly just touch on the biblical uh, and on the Christian, you know, each person is equally created out of love. Each person is equally a moral agent. But certainly the pagan notion of virtue has the sense that some people are better than others, right? And that's that's something which is sometimes a challenge for people. Anyway, I've been talking for a while. I have other thoughts on virtue, but I'll, I'll hold off on that for now. <laughs> Well, do we think we have, if our, what, do you all think and feel confident that our listeners would feel like we've answered the question, what is virtue according to the tradition? Does anybody want to summarize what we've said so far? Matt, did you raise your hand if something? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I know I was just talking, but if I may, really, <laughs> <laughs> so, really yeah, quickly, I mean, one, one thing we would probably want to talk about, too, is human nature, right? And, mm -hmm. um, and I, I think we didn't because we were just being focused on the question itself, but um, something I would throw out there, just kind of riffing on what everyone else said, is you might think of human nature as, you know, human beings are rational, human beings are free, um, we're political in some sense, or social, which means that we live in community with others, but we have to respect other people's rationality and freedom if we're to think about them as human beings. And then we're also fundamentally spiritual. Um, and you can think about this as a question of relationships, our relationship with truth in the world, our relationship with other individuals, with community, with God, right? Um, and then also on the other hand, thinking about virtue in terms of the world in which we live in, right? Is this a world which is orderly and beautiful or is it chaotic and meaningless, right? Um, and, and those are such huge questions, but to speak about virtue already implies an answer to them, which is that there is something... Um, that can be defined as human nature. There is a world in which we live and that world does have both order and chaos in it, but virtue is that which aligns us with the orderly part of it, right? Um, the beauty is real. Um, but beyond that kind of riffing on some of the things other people were talking about is um, virtue is actualizing a potential, right? Um, and this kind of gets back to something that Karen and Gary were talking about. Um, and as you know, uh, those of you who are familiar with Aristotle, he has this word energia, which is helpful, right? Because 
it uh, applies to contemplating and to being courageous in battle, which otherwise do not really seem to have. <laughs> One seems to be a lot more passive than the other, um, but both of them are human activities which are actualizing a potential. Um, there's some way in which it's important that that potential um, foster integrity in our soul and be appropriate to the circumstances. And that kind of gets back to the notion of um, psychological virtue as being like fitness. So, you know, I can steal something and that might be hard to do. Um, I might have to overcome fear to do it. Uh, and you might say, well, why isn't that virtue? Doesn't that take excellence? Doesn't that take effort? Um, but does it put me in a position where it severs my connection with others because I'm treating them unjustly? Do I have to lie to others? That also severs my connection. So when you look at it, you can be like, well, it hits some parts of human nature, but uh, violates others like community. Um, so for virtue to really be a virtue in the fullest sense, it has to meet all of those conditions. And I think the other one I would refer to that you guys already mentioned. So in addition to actualizing a potential fosters integrity is in some sense appropriate to the circumstances is that the exercise of virtue actually really has to entail effort, right? And, and you guys were saying this, like, look, a kid just sitting there, is that virtue? Well, I mean, I think to something Karen was saying, if that kid is like really got a lot of energy and they're just super restless and it's taking a lot of effort for them to actually sit there and be quiet, well, then there probably is virtue at stake, right? But if the child is by disposition just a very calm and passive child, then them being quiet there probably isn't virtue. And this leads to a certain, I think, confusion about what we mean when we talk about habit. I think sometimes, and I've noticed this just anecdotally, people think that habit is kind of like virtue just becomes kind of more automatic. And we think about it as habits like, um, you know, you're riding your bike to school and you just know what direction to take without having to think about it. Or you wash your hair in the shower, you don't have to think about it. That's not the kind of habit that virtue is, right? Virtue is the kind of habit where it's like you're, again, to talk about fitness, it's like you got someone who's a star athlete and they're playing a really hard game and they're doing well. And there are so many habits that come into play for them to play well, but they're also working really hard. It's not, it's not easy. Um, and yeah, that's why when someone says, hey, my kid could paint that, well, is that excellence? No, it's not excellence. It has to be something that's, we're going above and beyond in, in accomplishing it. Anyway, my apologies for that lengthy response, but this is also drawing on everything you guys were saying, and there was so much rich stuff in what the rest of you were saying. So. Oh, that was so good. I want to hear what other people are thinking. I'm, I, I, the one word that's coming to my mind with the, the last thing you said, Matt, is about habits is self-governance. I, I feel like self, to me, self-governance is the, is, is the, the key to habit training um, and helping to instill um, habits that encourage um, the cultivation of virtue in a, in a child. But I want to hear what other people have to say about what Dr. Post just said. That was really good. I, I could listen to a lecture for yeah. a little podcast. <laughs> we could keep going. We could go on. You, you guys are too kind. That was literally just riffing on what you guys said. It was drawing from your wisdom. <laughs> but it really, what, what, one of the things that really resonated with me, with what you were saying, was the fact that virtue, if, if, we, if we're exercising virtue or when we're pursuing virtue, we are aligning ourselves with the order and meaning of the universe and, and tending in that way. 
and recognizing um, at, at some level the um, the rightness of the order and the structure and the meaning that you know, that God has built into the world. Oh, I, w I would add on to that, that would you not then say also that virtue, if you were to look at someone and say that is a virtuous person, uh, encompasses more than one particular aspect. You would not say that one person who has the self-control to um, sit down during a class uh, yet does not have the any of the intellectual virtues or moral virtues or theological virtues, you would not call that a virtuous person. And I think when, as teachers, especially teachers of younger children, one of the things that we, we sort of look at is, okay, um, that child is struggling with sitting down, we'll focus on that, we'll work on that. But it's easier to work with a child that's struggling with self-control who has faith, who, who um, understands the point of orderliness or has wonder, who delights in, in whatever is happening in the classroom. And I mean, this is something where I, I know for a fact that I've had colleagues sort of look at me askance. I, I don't mind if I have a child stand up in a classroom or walk around um, at one particularly fidgety child literally sweep the floor because they just couldn't, you know, get the ants out. But I know they were paying attention. They were paying attention. They were listening. Uh, this morning, I allowed one student to carry another student back and forth in the back of the room because they were so excited about our chemistry jeopardy, they just couldn't hold it in. And I don't mind if they do that because I know that that child is filled with the love of learning, um, is giving me that attention, is giving me that order. And I wouldn't call that child a child lacking in virtue versus the child that's sitting quietly but not paying any attention at all, uh, copying somebody else's homework. That's not virtue. So virtue to me does encompass multitudinal categories coming together. And I think that is sort of at the core of what we're trying to do as educators is bringing all these different parts together. Because to, to me, virtue is, is a conversion. It can be taught, but it's a conversion process. I, I would say uh, one thing that that, uh, that account there really highlights is that there are, I think maybe some central uh, vir core virtues or that there is what a, a virtue it, it is or what these specific virtues are, but that there are many ways in which they manifest themselves in day-to-day -day life. And it's, you can't just read off, you know, one for one and say, oh, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't respectful what you did say, or that wasn't courageous because it doesn't, well, I mean, what the courageous or respectful or truth-loving thing to do is in any situation is going to depend upon a whole lot of circumstances. Um, uh, sometimes people can get confused with what uh, Matt Post was talking about with relativism, and, and they think that maybe virtue education leads to a kind of relativism because we can never say what virtue is in a particular situation. Um, and I, I think there's something to that, right? Uh, but it's not sort of deeply relative uh, in a way that uh, you, you might really be suspicious of. Um, one other thing, so I'd say 
um, two things come to mind as I'm, I'm listening to, to you all. One is that, uh, so I'll just mention what I think are the sort of the two most controversial theses uh, about virtue. One's from Socrates, and Socrates says that all virtue is the same. Uh, it's essentially uh, knowledge. It's essentially wisdom. And usually the response to this is something like, well, I don't know about that, right? I mean, they, they really respect Socrates, but when he gets to this point where he says, no, courage is just a kind of wisdom, and moderation is just a kind of wisdom, and everything else is just a kind of wisdom, and you know, all that's what virtue is, people are like, well, I don't know. Uh, so I just put that out there as, as something to, to consider. Um, I don't think Socrates makes this, uh, or, or Plato makes these uh, points lightly. Um, the other controversial thesis is by Aristotle, and this also goes to something I think uh, Peaches was saying, and that is that you, there is a unity to the virtues, and that you, I mean, Aristotle is, is in a way, this is why it's controversial, he says you don't have any of the virtues until you have all of the virtues, um, and this, this is a matter of uh, who answering the question, who has virtue or who is virtue. But Aristotle really thinks that you don't have uh, any of the virtues until you have all of them. And again, this usually gets the kind of, well, I don't know about that sort of response, right? Um, uh, but I, Aristotle seems to take it very seriously. And, and in particular, the, as you, the, there's a transforming virtue, right? And he's, again, with, with Socrates and Plato on this, and I, I would say probably the book of Proverbs, or, you know, it, wisdom, right, uh, um, is what transforms all of these other characteristics of a good person into actual virtues. Um, so, yeah, I, I think th those two uh, uh, accounts uh, regarding virtue are, are pretty, I don't know, difficult to think through, difficult to accept but definitely worth considering in a serious way, especially the latter one for virtue education, right? I can't just teach one virtue as like the master virtue and expect all of the others to fall into line. Um, I have to teach all the virtues um, uh, and they all have to come together. I, I, it has to be a holistic virtue education. Mm -hmm. Well, that would take us right into the next question I have of how ought virtue be taught? And in fact, can it be taught? I have something I, I always say quickly on this, but I'm just wondering, Matt Bianco, I thought I heard you also looking to jump in earlier. Was there something you wanted to say earlier that you haven't had a chance to No, I don't. No, I don't remember. Uh, okay, okay. So, um, because this is just riffing off of um again what Gary and and Peach were saying, and I think Peach, um, you made a lot of like really uh, fantastic and important points there. Thinking about faith. I mean, when we were talking about earlier, what is virtue? And I'll I'll transition quickly into this this question of teaching virtue. Um. You know, of course, also St. Paul will say uh, Abraham had faith and it was reckoned to be righteousness to him, right? And uh, and what does faith mean? This is this is uh, 
something that if I, if I may just briefly share on a personal note that I don't think I really understood at first. At first, I thought faith meant believing that there is a God or believing in Yahweh. Um, and I realized in time that didn't seem to be what he, what he meant. And, uh, and my misunderstanding is probably because, you know, we live in atheistic and secular times, whereas he did not. Everyone believes in divine powers, right? Like having faith in divine powers is not really that special. Now, believing in Yahweh in particular is special. Yes, that's that's unquestionable. But um, but I think also what he means by that, or what what I think he means by that, and theologians would be like, dude, you're on like page one of a thousand page book, and we're on page eight hundred. But um, is that it means trusting that God intends you good. And the reason why that would be reckoned righteousness is because it's really, really not obvious, right? Um, and I think if you want to see a parallel to this among the pagans, you know, you have Achilles who's like, hey, look, I'm excellent. And things didn't turn out the way they should have. I wasn't honored correctly. I don't really get what I, I'm, there's no meritocracy here. And he's like, and because there's no meritocracy, because the world is unjust, it's all meaningless. It's all meaningless, right? He has this great speech where he's like the one who fights hard suffers the same fate as the one who sits back. And then Achilles, the greatest warrior of the Achaeans, likens himself to a mother bird who feeds her children and leaves nothing for herself. And you're like, Achilles, dude, like, you're not a mother bird, just <laughs> FYI. Um, but that's how he sees himself, right? Um, and I think moments like that help you to appreciate what the Hebrew and Christian element brings into play one of which is that virtue isn't always honored. And if you think virtue matters for that reason, your commitment to it is going to falter. Um, and, yeah. oh yeah, go ahead, Peach, yeah. No, I couldn't agree more uh, in particular because the, the college responses just came out um, this, this past week. And again, as a teacher, I encounter so many times parents who consider one child virtuous because they have A's and another child not virtuous because they're not making those A's. And then you have the children who made the A's, who did all the work, who didn't get into Princeton and didn't get into Columbia and didn't get into these places who are <laughs> calling me saying, you know, this, this isn't right. I, I did all this work. What did I do? to deserve this. I deserve to be recognized and honored for the work that I did. I am a good person. I deserve this. And this past week, um, I actually had a, a parent who said, well, uh, the fact that they didn't get into this Ivy League school means that they really didn't try hard enough. So I had this extensive conversation just literally just a few days ago on, you know, <laughs> What virtue means in the sense that this child clearly put in the work, effort, et cetera, et cetera, but what is that worth if the result is uh, pride or I deserve this versus somebody else who maybe made Bs or Cs, but put every effort into what they did, will help their classmates, will, you know, are, are living what I would call, you know, the virtuous life. Um, and in schools, we're talking about schools, we're talking about teaching virtue. Uh, so often I think that that's something that is so critical in schools and we overlook, that we honor and we, we cheer on the A's. And obviously we should honor the work that's put in. 
But we shouldn't overlook the child that has virtue, but not the great. Right. Yeah, this this gets to the heart of why I wanted to have this interview, Peach, because I think that a lot of parents don't understand and teachers don't understand. And I think one of my biggest goals for this podcast is to get into the hearts of the parents and the teachers so they would understand really the basics of teaching classically in a classical way. And I, I that's why I want to get into you know, how should virtue be taught and can it be taught? Because I think that this is a really, really important question to to look at in order to help parents and teachers understand its implications, right? Because obviously, Peach, you, you just gave a great example of how misunderstood it, it really is in our culture today. So let's let's keep getting into the heart of this with more comments from you guys. Would you, if you all would indulge me for a minute, I would kind of like to share something that uh, is, comes from Charlotte Mason and the way that she operated her schools. And I was thinking about it while Peach was talking about, you know, how the student who got all A's almost felt entitled to a certain kind of reward, but a truly virtuous and good student who maybe didn't get those grades, you know, seemed like, you know, somehow they were falling short of the mark. And so in Charlotte Mason's PNEU schools, every term, they sent out exam questions. And of course, a lot of students were learning at home and the parents would get all of these exam questions and either they or, or the governess you know, conducting this, you know, would ask the students the questions, they'd record their answers, older students wrote their own answers and they sent them back to be graded. But in those exams, they included a place for the parents to share what the children were doing completely apart from academics. So, for example, if they had spent a lot of time working in a garden or reading to, you know, an elderly relative who, who was bedridden or anything that they were doing, you know, and, and again, I, I kind of could underscore that point. They were things that they were doing, and that became a part of their exam. And they, you know, just what, you know, what they were doing with their lives, and they would send that back to be recorded. And that was considered in the overall marks that a child was given, not just, you know, could they answer questions, but what were they doing with their time? We have that at Koinonia. I teach at Koinonia Academy, where I'm also the curriculum coordinator, and we have character grades on the report card um, to give that feedback of, this is, this is how the child is doing. The child may be struggling in, in reading or in chemistry, but they help their classmates. They you know, help the teachers. They, they're, they're great in some other way. And it's, it, we call it the, 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 character, the character grade, so to speak. It's not a grade, but it's a commentary. I think it's essential. Well, and something building on also what Karen said earlier about um, will and freedom of will and and tying this back also peach to what what you were saying about faith and the importance of faith. I loved how you made that concrete this is why uh Adrian invited all of us all of us here she's like Matt's going to talk a lot of abstract bunk and then the real teachers are going to uh, make it concrete but one thing that I think you guys are pointing at and I'll also tie this back to something Gary said is that um and I'm really interested in knowing what you guys think about this cuz you you are you're the real educators here is that one could say you know as saint paul says you know faith that's great but if i have not love 
right? Um, and, you know, like Jacques Maritain uh, will say, look, and I and in here he's drawing from the tradition, which is stronger in Christianity, but it's also there, I think, in some form among the pagans, which is that coerced virtue isn't virtue. Um, there's a lot of things in a school environment that are incentivized in different ways, grades, um, seeking approval, both from teachers and parents, on the one hand, teachers and parents, on the other hand, peers, of course, very big thing. Um, and, you know, all of these things are shaping one's love, but Maritain sees love as that's the thing that's actually really directing the will. Um, and yeah, what do we, can you direct that? Maritain will actually say, I'm not sure teachers in school should try and do it. I'm not saying I agree with them. I'm just kind of putting it out there as a question. He'll say, look, the teacher in the school teaches you how to reason morally and the family teaches you how to love. And the way he understands love, by the way, is like conflicts in family, which is interesting, right? Again, thinking about the Christian tradition, like um, love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemy, right? So Maritain is touching on to these elements of love. I would hesitate on saying that that's not something that isn't shaped in the school as well. Um, but in any event, I wanted to kind of put that out there, the importance of love and thinking about that as something that happens practically in the school as part of virtue education. That the point of love is actually at the core of all of this, whether it's at a school or at a home. I actually run a, a classical academic program in which I take students that have dropped out of the school system. I take homeless kids. I take children that have mental health issues. I take uh, students that have been in juvenile detention centers, children that you would not, quote unquote, normally find in a classical school, certainly couldn't afford a classical education. And I, I contacted this former student of mine yesterday to make sure it was okay to, to share his story. Um, but he had lost his father. His mother had been hospitalized with a mental health condition and his younger sister had was severely disabled. And he pretty much lost any directional purpose in school whatsoever. He was on the streets. He was um, running drugs. He was pretty much going in a one-track direction into a bad place. And his mother, in desperation, said, Peach, could you please take this kid? Because I just, I don't think anyone can do anything with him. And it was extremely difficult reaching this child, obviously. But he kept coming back and testing he would say, so you're talking about being nice to people. Being nice doesn't get you anywhere on the streets, right? Being honest, well, I, you know, I'll, I'll lose all the money I have. You know, tell, show me how any of these things have any point whatsoever. And so I actually started him on the dialogues. This is a bright kid. I said, come on, you can do this. We're going to have a discussion. So he started on it little bit by little bit. He kept coming back with those questions. The discussions kept happening. And little bit by little bit, this child started coming, and he's a teenager, um, started coming to the conclusion that, okay, there has to be a truth. And that truth has to be you know, fundamental, whether or not it actually happens in, in the world and et cetera. Uh, because he'd reached the point where he realized that was what was missing in his world was love. And so, you know, whether it was, you know, dealing with the drugs or the stuff that was happening in the homeless shelter where he ended up for a while, um, he, he finally narrowed it down to 
there's there's no love here. So is any of this valuable? So I had him for two years. He graduated high school. He went to a very good school. He He's now working, graduated college. And he basically attributes learning of the virtues through love, through somebody who cared to reach out, through reading different materials. And I gave him that quote of, of St. Paul um, because his first question was, well, what is true? It says, whatever things are true, whatever things are honorable, just define it. What, what is true? What, what does just mean? I was very belligerent about it at first. Now, come on, seriously, can you give me a Bible quote? You know, you know, my life's at stake here. And um, this, this, this kid was probably the hardest student I have ever had. And this is where I would say that my conclusion came, no, I can't teach virtue. I can show what it is. I can model it. I can guide it. But virtue is ultimately a conversion of the soul. You may know what it is to be brave. You may know what it means to be true, but you have to be convinced of doing this. A child can be forced in a school. I have to do this. Otherwise, my teacher will say something. That doesn't mean that they are, at heart, virtuous. Um, and I, I do think it's essential to for me that the love component is more important than we realize. We talk about intellectual virtues, theological virtues, bravery, goodness, etc. But without that love at the core, none of these could really bear fruit in a child's soul. And I don't know if this is making sense this way. As you can tell, I, I get quite passionate about this kid. I, I, yeah, I, I have to say, this is, I couldn't agree more with you about the fact that love is the, the key central, like, it all sort of turns upon this point. Um, and of course, famously, in classical, you know, the part of the classical tradition is the idea of ordo amortis and ordering the loves. And Charlotte Mason famously said, it's not how much does a youth know when he's educated, it's how much does he care? Yeah, and it's and then when it, it all just works together because it's the things that we care about when we care about things we are motivated to the excellence whether it be shoemaking or athleticism or you know whatever it is that's what it's the caring that motivates us to do our very very best and to excel and so it all ties in there you know just that, so integrated yeah that that Charlotte Mason quote is the reason why um, in my first week of chemistry, I teach chemistry and 90% come in of the in the class first day. Oh, my gosh, it's chemistry. I'm going to hate this year. And I asked them, you know, why should we care? Why should we care about, about anything? And I actually spend two days going over what caring means, what the point is, to help them understand that even if this is a subject they don't like or will never do again, Caring about something and putting that effort in will grow that virtue, will will help them grow in wisdom and understanding, but primarily in virtue. I'm doing something I don't like to do, and I'm going to be careful about it. I may, as a result, experience some, some level of wonder. So, you know, the student who is one of the students who struggles the most memorized the entire Madame Curie speech. Um, and I asked him, so so how did you how did you do this? I mean, 
this is a difficult thing for you. And he said, well, you said about we should care. So I'm going to try. So you know, ultimately, I mean, we're talking about how should we teach virtue? And again, as a curriculum coordinator, as someone who goes to schools and helps with everything from, you know, figuring out how to hire people, uh, you know, the, the witness is essential. We can, we can, we have to have a teacher who can demonstrate that as well as, as teach it. Because if you don't have the witness, if you don't have that love, if you don't have a teacher who can reach those students in love, which doesn't necessarily mean being soft, <laughs> you can't really bring virtue into the classroom. I'd like to share just quickly one verse from uh, the New Testament from Paul's letters that I was thinking about. Uh, a friend who's a, a scholar of Paul at the university mentioned it to me uh, that uh, I'm, I'm kind of shocked right now uh, at how well it fits in. But uh, it's from his letter, his first letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, he says, uh, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Um, and there's there's this, I mean, yeah, I, I'll just leave it at that and draw your attention to the phrase taught by God, right? uh, theodidaktos uh, in Greek. Um, and uh, as a probably on Paul's part, a, a conscious uh, contrast with uh, taught by someone else, taught by yourself, not taught at all, but uh how to love one another, uh, he says, you Thessalonians have been taught by God. Um, yeah, I think Matt Bianco wanted to say something. Well, yeah, Socrates famously says at the end of the Mino, if you take his words at face value, which is not something you can always do when you're reading Socrates, but if we take his words at face value, he says that virtue cannot be taught, that it's a gift from God, which coincidentally corresponds with what St. Paul says to the first or the, in his first letter to the Thessalonians. Um, interestingly, there's a dialogue of Plato's called the Cratylus, which is the dialogue of language. What is language? And you're probably familiar with it. But in that dialogue, there's a whole section in there, kind of a, almost half of it, where he's going through the etymology of Greek words. And it's probably, I think he kind of hints that it's kind of a made-up etymology. Like he's not necessarily really being serious that these words mean these things or they they have these as their origins um but it's a hypothesis i guess and in the dialogue he defines arete arete virtue as a good soul unimpeded flowing freely and and then he connects that back to the words for flowing and freely and all that stuff and What's interesting about that that definition is that he doesn't necessarily mean it, and yet I think we can learn something from it if that you know based on what that brings to light the um virtue virtue is if if virtue is a good soul unimpeded then and yet we can't teach virtue, then what we're doing is is teaching it just in case we can or and or and or teaching it in order to prepare the soul for that gift from God, right? So like the parable of the sowers, we're trying to create a a, a soil that can receive the seed of the seeds of virtue. So 
the 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 job might be if we kind of buy into this unimpeded soul thing our job might be to remove impediments in order for the soul to flow freely but flow in the way that you brought up earlier matt um which is to say to to actualize real potential you know genuine true good potential so if you're talking about if you're talking about this right from the very beginning and you know charlotte mason i'm indebted to charlotte mason and plato both for this idea but but also more recently um timothy petitza's book uh, ethics yes. of beauty ethics of beauty yeah you're you're talking about this idea where the, one of the first impediments i have and peach you just said this right one of the first impediments i have to virtue is i don't love the thing that i'm trying to be like or that i need to be like right so one of the first impediments we need to do is is rid or yeah rid this non-love rid this this fault anti-love or non-love and 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 offer up love the um the and one of, I mean, one of the ways that we can do that, if we're talking about how to teach virtue, right? One of the ways we can do that, and you guys know this, I'm just, I'm just, you know, whatever summarizing, I think, but is that we teach, you, you teach a, a child to love courage by putting beautiful examples of courage in front of him. I mean, my favorite example is you want to teach somebody how to be a good friend, then tell them all about Samwise Gamgee, read Samwise Gamgee to him, right? Then you'll know what a friend, what friendship is. Um, but whatever, whatever, whatever the virtues are that we're talking about, honesty, integrity, courage, justice, prudence, whatever, we just put beautiful examples of it. And, what, and the, the interesting thing is they're not necessarily loving good friendship or courage. They're loving Samwise Gamgee. But then because they love Samwise Gamgee, they want to be like him, and then they start being a good friend, right? It's, uh, it's, it's non-coercive, non-coercive, non-compulsive. And it, but it puts the, it puts the, uh, the virtues or, well, let's say it, it doesn't put the virtue into the soul, but it prepares the soul for the reception of the virtue. Right. Ooh. Right. Yeah. right. I mean, you don't I teach bravery. You don't teach bravery by putting a child in a dangerous situation. I mean, you, you give the examples first, you read Plutarch's lives and oh my gosh, that's, that's what I need to be doing. Um, you guide, you expose, you coach. And then hopefully when they do experience a situation in which they have to be brave. They they have a definition for it. Um, yeah, I, I love that. I mean, that's that's why we need the great books. Yeah, mm -hmm. I I really appreciate that you brought up impediments and removing impediments. I think that perhaps might be what sets a classical or what should set a classical school apart from a secular school or a non-classical school because there are some secular classical schools that are very great too. Um, but that brings to mind, so removing impediments, what are those impediments and what is different about the atmosphere or should be different about the atmosphere at a classical school seems to me things like, okay, the atmosphere forms their affections. So if we want our students to be affectionate towards sponge, you know, SpongeBob SquarePants, we're going to decorate the room with SpongeBob SquarePants, Right. But if we want our students to be affectionate towards that which is good and true and beautiful, we really need to be thinking about what we put on the walls in the classroom. That's just like basic 101, classical 101 classroom, right? Atmosphere. And so that to me seems like, I didn't even think of this until you said impediments, Matt, so I appreciate that. But it seems to me like the most basic practical beginning of setting up your classroom in a way that will 
what was it you said, Matt, about helping them want want to know the virtues? You said something really great. Um, but having that atmosphere, say that again. Uh, preparing the soul, I think. Or yes, preparing the soul. Yes. So having that atmosphere that's beautiful, simple and beautiful and true is going to help prepare their soul to then understand, you know, to embrace those virtues, I think, and to see them, I guess, even to perceive, maybe just to perceive the virtues when they're reading the stories and looking at the art and whatnot. So I really love that you brought up removing in impediments. I think that's that's a giant difference in the books that we read. This is why we are so careful about the books we choose for a classical education, because we want to make sure that those virtues are being uh, displayed or experienced through story, right? Um, yeah, so I'm sorry. I don't want to take up because this isn't, you guys are the experts on virtue, and so I want to hear more from you. So keep keep on uh, carrying on. Anybody else have anything to respond from Matt Bianco's? Well, just uh, one correction to what you just said, at least for myself. I'm, I'm a, if I'm an expert on virtue, I'm an expert on talking about virtue, not an expert on being virtuous. I'm that, that's not that's not true of me. But yeah, she's making virtue. all of us nervous. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know all of you, and I think you all have very virtuous uh, qualities. Although Gary says none of us are virtuous if we don't have all of it, so that would mean the only one no. virtuous is Jesus. <laughs> I didn't say that. Aristotle said that. So, uh. To be fair, it will make the character report card easy, just Fs, you know. Yeah, right. that is pass-fail, pass-fail. And you fail, you fail, you fail until you pass, right? It just, it doesn't, there's a, it's, it's I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's a little, uh, I don't know, uh, paradoxical, right, that on the Aristotelian picture, you, you can sort of grow and progress toward virtue, um, I'm not sure he'd say it's it's uh, here's the sort of philosopher's pedanticism, uh, but you don't necessarily pro progress in virtue. Uh, I mean, you progress to it, and then I think more or less at a certain definable point, you become virtuous. Uh, um, whereas before, everything else was leading up to that. Um, I w I'd like to say two things. Um, uh, just that I think have been said in a couple ways or, or alluded to. One is that uh, this question, can virtue be taught? I don't know um, whether there would be such a kind of, uh, well, let's just say in, in the dialogue, Plato's dialogue, Nino, right? Um, that I think many people are familiar with. Uh, Socrates in that, right, when he's asked whether virtue can be taught, his first response is, I don't even know what it is. Um, and so he dialogues with Mino for a bit, and they come to an agreement that they'll make a hypothesis about what it is. And then the dialogue ends uh, by them uh, agreeing that the hypothesis probably isn't true. Um, and so they're kind of back at square one, uh, back to what is virtue. And this has led a lot of people to think that uh, uh, Socrates or Plato thinks that virtue, in fact, can't be taught. Um, I don't know that that's the right lesson to draw from that dialogue. Um, it's certainly a plausible one. I don't, I don't think you're stupid or crazy if you read the Mino and you come away with that. For, because, for example, there are certain things Socrates says. Socrates says that he has never, I mean, never had a teacher of virtue. 
And I, I find this really confounding. Um, I mean, if there's any sort of evidence for virtue not being able to be taught, it's that Socrates says he's he never found a teacher of virtue. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, now, you could distinguish also, as Socrates and Plato do, between learning virtue and being taught virtue. So Socrates uh -huh. seems to have, at least the way he's portrayed by Plato, uh, is that he has, he has learned to be virtue, virtuous, uh, though he says he's never had a teacher of virtue. Uh, he's, though he's been on the lookout for them, and that's one of his sort of, uh, sort of most interesting tasks that he takes himself. I'm always looking out for people who can teach me what virtue is. Um, and then uh, the second thing that I think uh, sort of give, gives me at least hesitation about uh, whether virtue can be taught is, is the Christian tradition, right? So if we think of, I think what Matt, I don't know if he was saying exactly that we ought to think of faith as a virtue in in the way that we've been talking about virtue, but faith in the Christian tradition is is not a virtue in this sense, right? Because it's a gift, um, and uh, so you have thinkers like Aquinas uh, who make this distinction pretty clear that faith is a gift, and in that sense, right, not a virtue. Um, um, so, uh, and and the reason that might give you pause to think that virtue can't be taught is because. Uh, again, right, the, the Pauline emphasis on we can't live up to God's standards. Uh, there, there's no way we could obey the commands in a satisfactory way. Uh, and that would stem from a lack of our own virtue. Um, so if, if we can't, like in a literal sense, we can't do that, then how, how could we say that virtue can be taught? Um, so, th so those are just some things, yeah. Yeah, if I may jump in, thanks for that, uh, Gary. I mean, I, I could be wrong in this. I think that part of what Thomas Aquinas is driving at is just as you said, it is a gift. Um, or there's grace at work. And, you know, Thomas being the kind of guy that he is, there's all the different categories of grace. Um, but where the effort comes in, because there is a virtue there, is that um, we're extremely good at rejecting grace, right? And um, and Thomas talks about this, but one can just get it out of the Old Testament, right? It's like, God shows up and it's like, look, you've been dishonoring me, you've been disobeying my statutes, I should kill you all, but you know what, I'm gonna show you mercy. And they're like, oh, thank you, thank you so much for the mercy, we're never gonna break the laws again. And it's literally like, within five minutes they've broken and God is like, oh, okay, okay. We're gonna reset here. We're going to reset and then they do it again right so there's you see this activity of continuous grace being given and yet it is a struggle for us to accept that grace um so this kind of notion that everything is a gift in a way everything is a gift um from god but at the same time because we have freedom god is inviting us to work with him and to respond to him. But again, I'm a bit out of my depth when I'm when I'm speaking about theological matters. Um, something I would kind of, and, and this is one reason why I, something I didn't say before and I meant to is that, um, you know, is there a way in which Pauline faith is already implying love? And I think, uh, Gary, something you said was very helpful here. Um, you know, love of neighbor, love of enemy, but it, it would begin with love of God, right? And that's a relationship between us and God. And whether we admit it or not, God is continuously through his providence soliciting us, 
right? So <laughs> even though this takes a lot of faith in a way to accept, but the notion that even if you're in a community in which no one believes in God or even makes you hostile to God, there are still ways that God and his providence and his infinite power and infinite love is still soliciting us in whatever way that's possible for us to, to come toward him. Um, something though, if, if I may redirect from this for a moment to some other things that, that you guys were saying, I am, so on the one hand, you know, Plato, can you teach virtue? And uh, if I may, I, th I think that there is a, a solution of sorts given to this in Plato's Republic, um, which in a way, Matt Bianco and, and Peach and Karen have already, and, and, and Adrian have already elaborated. So um, Matt, you'll, you'll remember this in book seven, there's a part where Socrates says, uh, you know, education isn't what certain people say, it's not putting knowledge into the soul, like putting sight into blind eyes. It's rather about turning the soul. Um, so, and he said, just as in the cave image, you have to turn the whole body away from darkness to the light. So you have to turn the whole soul away from becoming toward being. Um, and, you know, that word in Greek is periagoge, uh, which just means to turn around or to lead around. Um, I should say lead around really, but a very, very similar word, not exactly the same as conversio in Latin, right? So conversion, right? You, um, and I can't remember if it was Peach who you mentioned, you actually may have used this word conversion when talking about education, but the way that this account tries to get around the problems that Gary outlined so, so beautifully is to say, well, we're not actually teaching virtue right, to use the old cliche, we're just trying to help get the horse to water, right, um, but that's not this, like, we're not force feeding the horse, and you can't ultimately do that, that's not going to work, um, so you can't teach virtue, but you can help get the impediments out of the way, and also give some direction, um, and in terms of practical, right, this was really your question, um, Adrian, is what's the practical, and, and Peach was saying, well, dialogue, Right, dialogue is one of the ways in which you're not force feeding someone; you're inviting them. Right, and and when it's genuinely a dialogue, at every moment they can withhold their consent; they can refuse to go forward; they can direct it differently if they want to. Um, something that you said, Adrian, was we. That's why we're so careful about what we teach, um, and this is already implicit in the things that that all of you have been saying. Right, you want to make sure that you present them with great exemplars of different kinds of virtue. Um, and really the idea isn't to say, look how beautiful these people are. It's actually to say nothing, to put them into the presence of it and to wait for them to see that beauty. Um, I'm using beauty in a very broad way here, obviously, um, to see that beauty of soul, uh, and then for them to have that, that loving response to it. And again, to get back to something that Gary said, this is a, a response that comes from within. Right? That's not something that we give them. Um, so we have dialogue. We have, um, you know, beautiful exemplars that we put before them. So I think, I think in many ways, you guys have, have uh, between all of you, kind of answered the platonic conundrum. Um, but one thing I'm, I'm curious to know, if, if I may, and I'm, I'm not trying to, um, you know, kill this, if this isn't where you want to go with this, Adrian, but a question for you all is, Something that Gary and, and Matt Bianco brought up earlier is Matt Bianco, I, I think, might have been the first person to mention wisdom and also in the biblical context. And Gary um, 
Adrian was praising your work, especially in highlighting phronesis, and you have several times brought up this question of knowledge and knowledge in connection with virtue. Um, and I was curious to know, you know, and I'm not going to use the word curious. I am wondering, I'm filled with wonder, um, to get your uh, thoughts on the connection between love, understood in this sense that we've been discussing it, and wisdom. What do you guys think is, is the connection between love and wisdom? Um, I'm happy to talk about that, but uh, and I'm, I'm afraid if I ask this question, we might not end up getting back to it. But I was wondering, actually, if uh, if Karen had any uh, sort of light to shed on this question about virtue being taught from Charlotte Mason. Um, I'm not very familiar with with her works. I mean, it, there's a lot to read and digest and uh, I'm very grateful for Karen's book in that respect. Um, but, uh, you know, and so my wife will be reading Charlotte Mason, for example, and she'll read me something, you know, and she'll say, is this, and I was like, that's almost straight out of Plato, uh, or that's straight out of, you know, uh, a lot of times it's straight out of Plato. So I'm wondering if, if we could maybe get some uh, insight from, from the Mason point of view about this question of virtue being taught and how it might be. And then I'm, I'm happy to jump back in on love and knowledge. Yeah, Charlotte Mason, she really looked back to the Greeks and the way that they approached education very particularly. Uh, there's, a, there's a passage where she says the Greeks had a more adequate view of education than we do. And then she goes on to talk about how like a primary focus of the Greek education was to kind of to put people in touch with um, with wisdom, like that was that you know teaching them what to to know what was right because that is is a factor. We haven't we haven't used the word conscience at all in this discussion, but that is a that, um, Charlotte Mason brings that into it. And she said because we've talked about the fact that we want to um, cultivate affection and love. For virtues and we talked a little bit about you know how you could do that but charlotte mason said very particularly that the reason that we're doing all of these things is that we're educating our children's consciences they have a natural desire really truly to be good to know to do the right things um but as human beings and we talked about human nature we're not born knowing what the good things are and so like like matt was talking about you know reading if you want to know what, you know, love in a friendship relationship looks like, you know, Sam Ganji is like the ultimate, you know, story. And you you dig into that and you aren't going to care about the virtue of friendship exactly, but you're going to come to value the quality of friendship and under, have some kind of understanding of what that might demand, you know, under various circumstances and what might be required of you in a as a friend. You know, because of reading that story and that Charlotte Mason would call that educating your conscience. And so she that that's a was a is a big focus for her. She was very, very particular about it. And she talks about how art, even music, and, and that's like such a you know, a platonic thing to talk about, the way that music can educate, you know, our consciences. And so she's she's very explicit. Charlotte Mason, yeah, she she understood Plato very, very well. And um, there, after she died, some of her colleagues even like 
compared what she was trying to do with what Plato was trying to do in the realm of education, you know, what they were trying to bring. And she thought that even um, very small children could learn to, you know, she wanted children to be given this picture of their own human nature, the possibilities that they had within them. And, and because that knowledge, that kind of knowledge of their, of human nature and the possibilities that we all have, it's, you know, it's not just, it wasn't just a child, you know, a child centered me, 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 what do you want? What are your tastes? What are, you know, your passions? It was about the, you have these qualities because you're a human being and everybody else has these same qualities and these same potentialities. And so she felt like the more you could put a person in touch with what it means to be a person, you know, the, that would increase their affection for the people around them and appreciation, you know, for everyone at every level. And she lived in such a classless society that it really um, was would be an almost revolutionary way of thinking because people were very much devalued on the basis of where they fell on that class scale in the culture that she lived in. And so her idea of educating the conscience was like what, like what Matt was talking about, you know, preparing the soil. That I felt like that was really relevant. You know, she talked about all the things that educate the conscience are planting ideas, you know, ideas of friendship and bravery and, and patience and all of the, you know, individual separate virtues into that, you know, that soil. And she believed that even very young children could um, assume what Adrian was talking about earlier, self-governance, that they they were the king of their own man's soul. That's, you know, she borrowed that language from Bunyan. And that even small children could make themselves do, she uses this language, make yourself do what you don't want to do. You know, have that kind of self-control and care enough to exercise it. And, and what an honorable, she uses the word virtue, you know, like what an honorable thing that is to do, even as a small child, to make yourself do, you know, what you know is right, even if you, there's a part of you that doesn't want to, because sometimes our, our knowledge of what's right and our, um, it's the difference between what we will choose to do and what we naturally, you know, the natural, what's the word I'm looking for? Um are just our natural desires, you know, that we have. If, so when you act according to whatever your natural desires are, like Peach was talking about earlier, you know, motivating students to do things in a school just because for the sake of prizes or some kind of rewards, you know, that's that's not virtue. If you're acting, and we talked about virtue as being acting, it's not really virtue if you're doing that for the wrong reason, but if you're doing it because it's right, right, that's where, you know, that's what makes it virtue. So Charlotte Mason really addresses these things and she is, has no qualms about speaking straightforward to children, say about the age of 12, about these, you know, this and saying, this is the way things are and expecting them to be able to understand it at that level. Mm -hmm. Well, we're getting close to the closing and, uh, of course, we didn't get to all my questions. <laughs> we knew we could do the whole podcast just defining virtue. Um, but I wanted to end by asking each of you if you have a book or um, a dialogue or a section from even a book or an essay that you could recommend to parents and or teachers that could help them maybe wrestle with and come to um starting to really understand virtue and what virtue is. Um, 
and how it could be taught, applied, any of those, if you guys have any suggestions. I immediately, my mind went straight to, of course, Charlotte Mason, Volume 6, and uh, I pulled up a, a passage on Volume 6, page 16 and 17, where she's talking about um, basically narration, but um, she says that, you know, after they've narrated, basically, there is that Socratic questioning is useful for the purpose of moral conviction. And I really love that section because it really brings into the idea that after a student narrates from a story, where of course the story we want is to have some kind of virtue or noble idea, you know, being the, the center of the story, but after the children have narrated and they clearly know the story, then you use Socratic questioning to help bring in that moral conviction, to help them to wrestle with as Peach said, dialogue through the ideas that were in the book without uh, so much direct instruction from the teacher, but allowing the students to awaken to these ideas um, through the use of Socratic questioning. So I, that's my my uh, recommendation is volume six, especially say the first 20 pages of volume six, if, if the whole book is too much. So any other recommendations from you guys and even just a section like I gave, if it's too much for a parent or a teacher to read a whole book. That's something which is, it's not a book per se, it's more of a program because, you know, as you said, that, that dialogue is so essential and, you know, so many different people brought up in different ways, wisdom, love, these are all essential components to teaching virtue. Um, and again, I'm going to stick with, I think it's a conversion process versus um, something that can be taught. And in that light, there's a program by the Dominicans called um, um, uh, 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 Virtues in Practice. Okay. So Virtues in Practice is, it's free, it's online. Um, I think it's under NashvilleDominicans.org. And it's a three-year cycle. There's the year of faith, year of hope, year of charity. And for uh, the youngest grade, so it starts in pre-K through to sixth grade, but it really can be used in the high school as well, is a monthly virtue to discuss a question. So it gives you a saint. Uh, it gives you some small historic context of that saint. But then it gives you a specific virtue and basically... A, a Socratic dialogue to have at home. So whether the virtue is, is, is faith, the discussion at home is, what does it mean that God is all-knowing? What does all-powerful, what does all-loving mean? And uh, we use this at Koinonia. It's school-wide. So every month I'll post the new virtue for the month. And the idea is that, yes, we do it in the classroom. It's incorporated into whatever it is that, that we're teaching. You know, um, so if the if the virtue of the month is reverence, that concept of reverence and the saint of that time, Saint Hyacinth, is incorporated in what we talk about. We'll ask the students to bring it up. But the key is to take it home and for parents to go through these activities with their children in a dialogue versus, all right, we're going to give you this project to do, this writing to do, this arts and crafts that will get lost. It's meant to be a dialogue to help bring children closer to the acting upon a virtue, that conversion to, to virtue, um, and you know, bring families into that love and wisdom 
of what virtue ultimately is, which is that reflection of, of God in our lives. Okay. So it's like a tool just to help conversation. Yes. That's and great. it's wonderful. It's free. Um, it's beautifully done. Okay. Thank you. Well, virtues in practice. I'll put these all in the show notes. Anybody else? Want, already, oh, oh, go ahead, Matt. Um, thanks, Karen. If you want a book, if they're looking for a book about how to teach virtue, obviously I would agree with you on Charlotte Mason. Um, I would like to say, you know, Plato's Dialogues, but good night. Um, so I probably would say, I probably would say James Taylor's Poetic Knowledge, specifically the section on the um, Integrated Humanities Program. And then, uh, but if you want to just do it instead of reading about it, if you just want to do it, then I would just say read Aesop's fables. Just read a fable oh. a day to your kids. And and the one thing I would encourage is if if you can, if it's not built into the story, sometimes they are, is leave off the fab the moral. Don't Thank you. read the moral. I was going to say the same thing. Right? Yes. Ask them what the they fable. think the moral is. Yes. And ask them. Yeah. Ask them yes. what they think the moral is. And then throughout the day, you can have the, you know, these kind of Socratic conversations, you know, mini Socratic conversations about well, what, what do you think the moral is? Why do you think that? Well, what do you think about, you know, whatever, you know, and you just kind of right. getting them to contemplate the, the fable itself. And, and the Aesop's fables, I think are a beautiful way of cultivating, of of turning the soul, thank you, Matt Post, turning the soul toward the vices and away from the virtues and getting and cultivating a love for the good and a hatred for the shameful. Um, I think you said, you meant to say turning them towards the virtues and away from the vices. Whatever I said. I, I, think, I, <laughs> I, I, I mean, that is Christ's way of teaching was that questioning. He didn't tell up front. What what do you think? That I mean, ultimately, the, the beauty of the classical education is reflected right there in Christ's teaching on earth. Uh, exactly. It's a great model to follow. It is. All right. Who else? Well, since um, you I, re I, recommended volume six, oh, I'm sorry. I promise I'll be quick, Gary. Um, no, go ahead, please. Charlotte Mason's fifth volume is actually called Formation of Character, which is essentially a Victorian way of saying, you know, how do we teach virtue? Um, and But rather than recommending the whole book, which is her least read, least favorite, and most difficult book to tackle, I'm going to suggest... I agree. You can, <laughs> it's you can very just difficult. read... The most interesting part to read is section four, which is a series. Every chapter is a standalone chapter, so you can just jump in and read it. It's fine. It's a series of um, standalone stories, stories, but where Charlotte Mason has read something, including one of them is on a platonic dialogue, and um, and she she talks about she talks about how she read the book and then these educational principles and ideas that she took out of it and how they you know you can use novels. Um, I think this is, it's in that section where she said it's actually stupid to neglect reading novels for their educational value in this pursuit of virtue. Um, so volume four, or, or excuse me, volume five, formation of character, section four. That's, th those those are the good parts to read that I, I think parents and teachers would enjoy. <laughs> okay, Gary. Um, 
Uh, I'd recommend uh, two books. Um, one, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, uh, for <laughs> someone who essentially taught himself uh, uh, how to be free, what freedom meant, and along with that, a virtue and all of the intellectual things that that came along with that. Um, uh, my students always uh, appreciate reading his story, especially as a near the end of a culmination of sort of a historical overview of of um, uh, books about these things. Uh, the other one I'd recommend so almost a continuation of that uh, by W.E.B. Du Bois uh, called, uh, there's two works. So there's a short chapter in his book, The Souls of Black Folk, called On the Training of Black Men, uh, which in brief, right, it's, it's short, it's a chapter, uh, sets out um, how he thinks people in his particular context, black men, uh, uh, should be uh, educated, uh, in his words, for life, um, not just for jobs, but for life. Uh, and then he has another uh, sort of more extensive work, uh, The Education of Black People. Um, but both of these uh, um, uh, I've benefited from, and, and my students said that, that they also have enjoyed uh, thinking about them, obviously in a different, in an American context, and one that brings in uh, issues and questions about race and, and society at large. Um, um, but if, if what we're talking about is good and true and right, then it will be applicable to even that sort of uh, circumstance. Great, great choices, Gary. And Dr. Post? Oh, yeah. Um, tough to follow that act. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll I'll say really quickly, you know, just drawing on something that Peach was saying, and, and actually all of you were saying is that about, and you know, and Matt, about preparing the soil is, you know, if we're looking at classical Christian education, and you think about, oh, turning the soul toward being, or on the other hand, Sam Gamgee, you know, uh, where where are you going to find that exemplar, which is both being and a human, that um, something that transcends you that you can love and something that's personal and intimate that you can love. And obviously, for the classical Christian educator, that is going to be Christ and looking at Christ. But to say that my suggestion is the gospel is not, no, that, that stuff has already been discussed here. Um, and thinking more broadly um, for all classical educators, um, I would I would recommend, and kind of in a way as a compliment, maybe a little bit to what Gary was saying, is the works of Jane Austen. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about this for classical teachers maybe to talk, like read with your spouse and talk about it with your spouse or with people in your homeschooling uh, co-op or people in your school, because the dialogue again is gonna be very important. But Jane Austen's works are so much about um, the different kinds of vices, where they come from, what happens from your disposition, your childhood, the way that you've been taught. Um, and no one, in uh, her works is there. They have to kind of find their way and it talks about how they find their way. So it gives a lot of exemplars of vice, a lot of exemplars of virtue and how one works through it. But in particular, the reason why I say it as a compliment is it's describing it as it occurs often in the household. That's what's so important to her, in the household and in the family context. But the reason I preface this by drawing on some of your other remarks that point toward Christ is that it does matter how we read literature. And of course, it is possible to read Jane Austen and say, oh, this is an interesting 
uh, work of literature that tells me something about, you know, 18th, 19th century England, um, or it tells me about um, class, or it tells me about this, that how to live in a uh, cultured way. Um, but it makes a difference whether you read these works and you're looking for the image of God in each and every character mm -hmm. and uh, trying to read it by loving God and by loving God, loving your neighbor. So that's why I prefaced it in that way. But I, I'd recommend Jane Austen, maybe uh, Pride and Prejudice or Mansfield Park is uh, amazing because it also explores how we can be condescending and neglect people, even in the way that we're loving them, which I think is also a danger for all of us. And uh, so thank you so much, Adrian. Oh, this was great. Thank you everyone so much. This was a wonderful, wonderful interview. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education. Also, be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener-supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, Well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be, in a few words, this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know, best of all, what it is to behave under it, as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven.